Are you a software professional looking to make a lasting impact on people and the planet? At General Motors, our vision is a world with zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. And we need innovative people like you to join us on this journey and challenge the limits of what is possible. From autonomous cars to software-defined vehicles, you'll translate breakthrough technologies like AI into experiences that people love, all while pushing the world forward toward an all-electric future. See how you can shape the future of mobility at careers.gm.com. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Hey, welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. If you're at all like me, you might be feeling both excitement and maybe a little bit of angst at how generative artificial intelligence is going to change our lives over the next few years. Here on this podcast, we like to explore what science can tell us in terms of how we make decisions, set policy, and just generally make the world better. So for our 400th episode, I decided that we need to talk about our brains. Yes, it might be selfish to center the human species above all else on this world, but I personally can't help it. That's just how my brain was wired. And so if there was ever more of a pressing problem than saving our own human brains, well, I can't think of what it might be. Even if we completely destroy our planet, maybe there's still a way that we can somehow survive if our brains are left at least in some ways intact. But even if we save the planet, if we allow artificial intelligence, if we allow technology to take over our brains and rip us of what my guest calls cognitive liberty, then what's the point of anything? We're starting to see the real power of these tools. And up until now, I wasn't really worried about how neurotechnology would be affecting our daily lives because it just seems so far off. But listening to Nita talk, reading her book, the battle for your brain, defending the right to think freely in the age of neurotechnology, I've realized that the time is now. Nita Farahani is the Robinson O. Everett Professor of Law and Philosophy at Duke University, and she's the founding director of the Duke Initiative for Science and Society. She served on the U.S. Presidential Commission for the Study of Bioethical Issues, and she holds degrees from Dartmouth, Harvard, and Duke. Who better than Nita Farahani to have as our 400th guest. Nita Farahani, welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm delighted to be here. So the battle for our brain. I have to say, when I first heard about this book and I heard that you were the one who wrote it, because I've been following your work for a while, I thought, oh, this is exactly what we need to talk about and then in the beginning, you went right deep into this notion that like the tech is already here. 
Um, yeah. And that is already and and I and I maybe it's because you know I've worked with some of these neurotechnologies, EEG and fMRI, and like I just can't get behind that. It just seems like we are so far away, yeah, from you know from being able to really use EEG, especially kind of in our personal lives. You know, I've so well, I wonder I if it depends you could... on what you want to use it for, right? I mean, so yeah. so first. Right. A decade ago, every neuroscientist that you would talk to would be like, "Okay, these are toys and all that they're picking up is muscle twitches and eye blinks. They're not actually picking up any meaningful signal. Right. The signal to noise on this stuff is terrible in everyday settings. Dry electrodes placed in different places by home consumers are going to do nothing. Right. They're not going to actually pick up anything. Nobody's going to apply them correctly. It's all going to be terrible, right? Yes, exactly. And, um, <laughs> and I was totally on board with that. I mean, I, I I agreed with that. I, you know, first started writing about this stuff more than a decade ago. But, you know, really, like the only game in town was fMRI. And that's never going to go mainstream, right? We're not going to walk around with fMRI scanners on our heads. Like, just like it doesn't work. But I will tell you this, which is um, now, depending again on what you're using it for, both the electrodes have gotten much better, but the AI behind it has gotten much better. And so the ability to filter out noise is much, much, much better. The ability to figure out how to place it, right? I mean, so most of them in the past, they were the headbands that, you know, are stiff and uncomfortable. I have a bunch of them. They're hard to wear. They're really hard to get to actually make good contact with all the hair that I have on my head. It's impossible to actually like ever get it seated properly. And if I move, it, you know, distorts the signal and it goes from, you know, 80% to 20% contact, right? But now when the newest game in town is to first have them either, like if you're doing the headband approach, you've got soft headbands that, you know, have electrodes that are rather than the hard plastic actually making good contact. Second, the software is able to actually speak to and interact with and figure out if you have good contact and do baseline calibrations to make sure that you're actually getting good contact. And then third, the non-headband ones are what really blow me away, right? So these are the earbuds that have made just, you know, extraordinary advances. The headphones were the soft cups around the ears that you're using to listen to music and do everything else have lots of electrodes now that are making good contact with the skin. And They've been trained against medical grade EEG. And so what has happened is there's been, you know, huge data sets of medical grade EEG that have been uh, tracking brain signals and then associated with the same, you know, earbuds and headphones. But, right, on what is the big question, right? And so you can pick up basic brain states. You can pick up things like, are you happy or sad? Are you bored or engaged? Is your mind wandering? Are you paying attention? Are you fatigued? And then you can pick up basic P300, right? So this is recognition signals in the brain. And so I've been very, very careful in the book. When I say the technology is here, I've never once said, and we're doing real-time mind reading, right? Because we're not. That's not what we're picking up from the brain. What can now be picked up by these devices are brain states. And what I do a deep dive into the book on is how that alone should make us concerned, that that alone has so many different applications that are already being used and misused in ways that we need to wake up and be aware of and be grappling with. What's going to happen between here and the next three years is much more extraordinary advances given 
that the, the form factor has been addressed by embedding brain sensors into everyday devices and, you know, layer on top of it generative AI, which has already shown to make leaps in pattern classification and decoding for the unique differences that we have in our brains. And suddenly you have even bigger leaps, right? And so the technology is here. It's getting better every day. What we can expect over the next couple of years is all of the big tech companies launch their multifunctional devices that have brain sensors on it is that it's going to become part of our everyday lives. Can it do everything yet? Are we controlling all of our devices and our mouse and our keyboard with brain sensors yet? No. But will we be within the next few years? I think so. So, you know, I, I really want to talk about the kind of implications of this ethically as as that's sort of a big, big feature of your work. Um, and I and I have to say, like, if but you I want had... to commit you on the science first, because well... I feel like unless you have the facts first, right, I mean, the implications are kind of like it doesn't matter unless you agree to the baseline facts of they actually are here, they can do something and they're picking up something that is meaningful from the brain. Yeah. So if you had said this to me in October... Yeah, you know, 2022, I would have been like, oh, this is like total. But when ChatGPT came out and all of a sudden we saw this kind of just real, real time, not only the power of generative AI, but what like how quickly it can improve. I have to say, like, uh, you know, I think you're right. All right. <laughs> I think well, this good. Is, as long I as think, we're there, as long as we're I think in we're agreement there. that we can go that we can go from there. Yeah. <laughs> so. Except that I want one thing that I before we kind of like totally, you know, you have me completely one 100 percent on board. One of the things I wanted to ask you is, you know, there's there's a sense that like your brain waves are some activity that we can pick up with these sensors that are still pretty crude, can somehow be like a fingerprint that they can distinguish individual from individual. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, sometimes I wonder whether like our facial expressions can give us a lot of information about whether we're happy or sad or whether we're, you know, maybe whether we're lying or not, you know, <laughs> my micro expressions, like all of that was a fad too. And sometimes I wonder whether the generative AI, you know, which has spent a lot of time thinking about or not thinking about analyzing faces, training data on face facial recognition data, if that isn't just going to be in some ways you know, just as big, uh, you know, a signature face ID, you know, we're, we're giving our data away all the time. So I guess my question to you is, is there a difference, do you think, between actually getting information from the brain versus getting information from our faces? Yeah. Um, no, it's a great question. And I should start by saying, like, I'm not writing this in isolation from all of the different ways in which our cognitive and affective experiences are being read by AI, right? I, I'm giving the kind of use case of like, and then what if also your brain activity is being decoded, right? But the general approach that we'll get to in the conversation about cognitive liberty, like I'm not I'm not claiming that it's just the only modality that we can do any form of mind reading, right? If we want to use that is through neurotechnology. I do think that there is something different about what is unexpressed contents in your brain versus even micro expressions that you have on your face. And when you start talking about very good AI, being able to pick up microfacial differences, and that science is still really suspect. So like, let's see what happens there. And there are all kinds of reasons why from, you know, neuroatypicality to, you know, if I'm having a migraine or whatever else it is, right, that there are differences in microfacial expressions that don't truly express necessarily what the cognitive and affective experiences are that you're having in your brain. 
But yeah, that's also problematic. You know, last night I was catching up with a friend here in the Bay Area who was telling me that they're developing, you know, AI to try to train it on lie detection from microfacial face issues. And I was like, this is what I'm writing about. That's terrible. And stop. <laughs> right. Like, well, like, how do you yeah. not see that that's going to be applied in such dystopian ways if you get the science right? Right. Like if you can actually prove it. So um, sometimes today, oftentimes today, information from psychogenic profiling, from AI, from your GPS location to your financial transactions to everything you've ever typed into social media and on your computer to how quickly your keystrokes are being logged, sometimes that profile is going to give us much richer information than brainwave data is in any given moment in time. But that's not the way that the world works, right? It's additive, right? And so there is a missing piece, which is brainwave data, which is the piece that you actually are able to keep unexpressed um, in some ways, right? There's going to be some tells in your face and some tells and other things that you do, but there is a piece of you that is unexpressed. And just to give you an example of that, like, I love modern design. I don't know if you love, like, if you have, if you're, if you have a particular genre, but for a very long time, I've collected modern furniture and modern art. One of my favorite things to do is like have a find on, you know, uh, a yard sale or something, which is some classic piece, right? But in terrible condition and then take it and have it reupholstered. And yeah, I love it. I'm I'm a little bit judgmental about some non-modern uh, furniture. And so, <laughs> you know, when I walk into a friend's house and they've just redecorated and they have some like overstuffed, you know, brightly colored thing that they're like, do you love my new couch? I don't. Okay. And, but I'm not going to tell them that. I'm not going to be like, no, right. I mean, you have terrible taste. No, right. I smile and I say, like, I, you know, I love it and I love that you love it. And I think it looks fantastic here. Um, I have a pretty good poker face. I don't think, right. I mean, I have joy for my friend, but that does not mean I actually like their couch. And if you did microfacial analysis, what you would most likely pick up is my joy for my friends that they love their new couch. But that is not joy about that piece of furniture. Like, I, I really think that piece of furniture is hideous. This is kind of like you can maintain a dichotomy between expression and the outside world and what's in your brain. And brainwave data adds that final piece, the one piece that you keep and retain from anybody else. And again, from the brainwave data, you're not going to pick up me thinking, I hate your couch and I love modern furniture. But you can pick up disgust and, you know, brain states that are going to be revealing of the dichotomy between what you're expressing in your face versus what's in your brain. I mean, but we've tried to use this, uh, as you mentioned, you know, to to figure out whether a criminal is telling the truth or lying for decades. And we've failed time and time again, even with medical grade EEG. So do you really think it's that this that, you know, these these AI um the enhancements in the AI technology now that there's the big different player? Because we're also, you're also suggesting that they're going to get much less data from, you know, these these devices that just go over the ear or, or so on. Yeah, I mean, yes and no, right? So again, it depends on what you're trying to measure, right? So if you only have a few electrodes, you're not picking up all activity across the entire brain. And to be clear, we're just talking about EEG, right? There's FNIRS, which is coming onto the market. And there's already, like, I have one of them that's, um, you know, surprisingly good uh, for, I, I wasn't aware of it and, and tried it out recently. And then, you know, Brian Johnson has been developing this bigger kind of uh, 
like almost like a bike helmet right now that is F nears. And if he ever figures out the form factor from that, that's going to peer more deeply into the brain and pick up a lot more information. Right. And we should just say it's a infrared spectroscopy. So it's just another way of like, you know, tracking brain. It's another way of of tracking the brain. Um, Functional near infrared spectroscopy is it, it shines an infrared light like through the skull and how it scatters um, that light scatters through kind of tissue uh, in the brain. It, it gives us information, the difference between it and EEG. EEG is just the electrical activity that's rising to the surface, right, to the skull. There's a lot of electrical activity that's deeper in the brain that's not being picked up on. EEG has the benefit of what we call good um, temporal resolution, which is you can pick up in real time what's happening in the brain. So does FNIRS, but it also has the benefit of having good spatial recognition, which is it can peer more deeply into the brain. So I think most people think eventually EEG is probably not going to be the best modality for actually decoding the brain if we can figure out some of the ones that peer more deeply into the brain and also give you real-time information that's going to be more powerful. But that's an aside. Um, You know, the question of criminal interrogation Part of it is because there's a mismatch between, you know, kind of what people are trying to measure in the technology itself, right? If a person is lying or not, that's not a basic emotion. That's a very complex, you know, higher order thought process that's trying to be decoded. The more you can break down into kind of like basic brain states, the better the decoding is. And so if you're talking about lying, that's very hard to accomplish. Almost no technology exists that does that well. But if you want to try to see, like, does somebody recognize an aspect of the crime scene, recognition is a more basic brain state. And so the kind of technology that most police departments are using, and we can get into all kinds of reasons why I suspect, you know, kind of uh, scientifically, because there's more of a, there's kind of an art and science component to this. But interrogating somebody for, whether or not they recognize a crime scene detail that nobody should recognize unless they're somehow they were there or they were associated with it, um, that's a easier brain state to decode. Or what I think is a kind of really interesting and, and promising scientifically, ethically fraught uh, approach is to look at a different brain signal, which is called the N400 signal. And I write about this in the book as well where the idea here is to see congruence or an incongruence. And so to give an example of what that means, you know, you have two pieces of information and your brain either sees them as like going together or not going together. And so um, I give the example in the book of, you know, you are the criminal and, you know, somebody says like body lake. You're like, no, I did not bury the body in the lake. And so your brain signals incongruence body woods and your brain is like, yes, that is where the body is, right? Body is in the woods. And so, you know, that kind of thing, which is probing the brain for more basic information, like figuring out what you can decode is really important to figuring out how good it is. But a complex psychological phenomena like lying has to be broken down into much more basic components to be able to decode it from the brain. And so I think that's part of why every lie detection test that has existed has largely failed. It's not, you know, and and usually they break down into that, right? So like the early fMRI ones on this were trying, like had a theory of lying, which is that it takes more cognitive load 
to lie than to tell the truth. And then it just turns out that for some people it doesn't. It's like lying comes like it's like second nature. And so, you know, it's harder to figure that out. So, yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for kind of, you know, laying down that the the ways in which it doesn't just have to be whether or not the person is telling a lie, but these other kinds of tells um, that that could be a little bit more uh, closer to to what we can do today. In your book, in the in the uh, introduction, you pose a number of dilemmas, <laughs> and I have to see like with each dilemma, I was like, yeah, yeah, what is it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then of course you spend your book, you know, taking each one of those in turn. Um, so I thought maybe we could start with with the kind of also the ba- basic premise that we seem to be giving away our brain information, just like we've given away so much of our other thing, you know, aspects of our lives that seem to have been private, like including our thumbprint and our <laughs> face ID, like, it's more convenient, I'm gonna just do it. Um, so, you know, you, t- you talk to a lot of people, including people who are developing the tech, including neuroscientists who probably should know better. <laughs> Why do you think it is that we are not at all concerned, it seems, to give away all of this data? And yet, like one of the most persistent um, persecutory delusions and fears that people who, you know, have psychosis have is that their minds are being read. Like, I do think this is something that is like a deep fear that we have within our human nature. And yet we just seem to be like, oh, it's fine if it helps me open up my phone more quickly. Right. Um, You know, so we have unwittingly given away so much information about ourselves And most people have come to just be resigned about it. Or you ask them, you know, why are you not just changing your privacy settings on that application, which you could do? And, you know, they say things like, well, I don't have anything to hide. Or, you know, it's just it's too like, yes, my my privacy preferences are to keep things more private, but the effort it would take is such that it's just not worth putting it into it. And which is to largely say that they don't think that there are significant consequences to giving away their data, right? They they recognize that it's being commodified, but they think it's not really harming them. And other than, you know, they might feel like it's icky, but they don't really feel harmed. Or, you know, I even hear people saying, well, yeah, but I really like the personalized recommendations that I'm getting. And I bought something just last week from what was recommended to me, right? Um, and, you know, so we could get into that. That's a whole psychology, right? But then the brain data, I think, is different. And I'm trying to make the case of kind of the wake up call about how it's different, but it's being presented to consumers as if it's the same, right? Um, so, you know, it's it's like, this is just more of the same. It's just, you know, here's a new device. And yeah, our terms of service are just exactly the same as all of the other terms of service. And and it's being introduced to people in lots of contexts that are non-threatening. So it's like, you know, here's a game that you can play with your brain and here's a you can meditate uh, and relax with it. Or you go into an art museum and you can see which art you really love. And so the context in which brain activity is being collected and commodified today is largely in very non-threatening contexts that don't raise people's alert levels. And then I think people don't think about if somebody says to you like, well, look, you're already tracking your heart rate and your steps. Why don't you just track your brain activity? It doesn't occur to people, I don't think, that while the proposition seems analogous, 
what you are decoding from the brain is different in kind. Brain activity reflects a lot more than just basic automatic functioning in the body. What it also reflects are your feelings and your emotions and your cognitive kind of states and your thinking. And that gets to the core of who you are and it gets to the core of the things that you do actually choose to keep private. And everybody has something to hide when it comes to what's in their brain, not in the sense of like you're thinking about committing some horrible crime, but it is the space where you work out everything. And if you don't have that space to work out everything, suddenly what it means to be human is fundamentally different. And so I just I don't think people are thinking about it. And then when I asked and interviewed some of the people who willingly are already going into like Facebook groups and sharing their brain data with other people and said like, hey, have you ever thought about like the risks of doing so? The answer is no. Right. I mean, they just literally haven't thought about it. Like, oh, it didn't it didn't occur to me. Are you a software professional looking to make a lasting impact on people and the planet? At General Motors, our vision is a world with zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. And we need innovative people like you to join us on this journey and challenge the limits of what is possible. From autonomous cars to software-defined vehicles, you'll translate breakthrough technologies like AI into experiences that people love, all while pushing the world forward toward an all-electric future. See how you can shape the future of mobility at careers.gm.com. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, I've I've uh, I've had a lot of trouble sleeping over the last few weeks as I as I've thought about how generative AI is going to be changing our workforce. You know, what what I do, what my kid, what I teach my kids to do, like what are the skills? And and just as you were talking, I had a, this kind of additional fear that crept up, which is like, okay, so let's project 10, 20 years into the future, where you know I've now allowed these different uh, AIs to help me write emails to, you know, help me do a lot of my personal work, but also my professional work. And sure, life is a lot easier. It's more predictable in the sense that, you know, the AI is only trained on the past, so it can't sort of like innovate into the future, although I suppose, you know, and and all of a sudden, I feel like, you know, we're going to this place where we already worry as neuroscientists about free will and to what extent is our behavior predetermined by our biology, by our past, by the way that our brain is wired up. Now you add on this uh, 
crutch of generative AI, you know, with walking through your day. And I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about sort of, does this lead us to a dystopic situation where we are completely stripped of free will and, yeah. you know, <laughs> life is... I, I mean, I worry about this very much too. And I worry about it probably, I mean, just to make sure you never sleep again. Um, I, 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 I worry about it as a closed loop system. Right. And so right. you have generative AI that's creating the information. You have brainwave activity that's being picked up in response to what's being generated and then refined and, you know, a kind of continuous loop until you stay in that loop that is being read and calibrated based on your brainwave activity. And that to me is terrifying. And it's terrifying if we recognize that we humans have have lots of shortcuts that our brain takes. And those are useful and important shortcuts, right? I mean, so we have selective attention. And so I need to know between all of the threats that are coming at me, which one is the tiger and to be able to like turn my attention to the tiger and make sure that I run or hide or do whatever it is that's going to keep me from being eaten by the tiger. And so we have selective attention and that selective attention, as well as, you know, kind of other like alert to novel stimulus or alert to you know, kind of catchy headlines or, you know, all of the different cognitive biases. Generative AI, of course, knows all of that has been all of the data that has been fed into generative AI helps it understand what all of those cognitive and heuristic biases are that we use. And if the intention of a developer, for example, is to make sure you stay on device and and success and so the metric of success is how much time you're spending on device, all you have to do is make sure that those cognitive biases are being regularly activated and selectively activated over, you know, kind of thinking slowly and critically and um, engaging more deeply into information. And you can pick up and see, like, how is brain activity occurring and does it correlate well with the kind of novelty and the, you know, kind of engagement metrics that you can measure directly from the brain and then make sure that that's the content that you're feeding to it. I don't worry as much that it's the AI with intentionality doing it. I worry that it is right. the developers who are developing the AI whose metrics of success are to capture the human brain and to keep it addicted and to keep it focused, that's what I worry about. And that we now have very powerful tools in a closed loop system to do so. So 100%, we're on the same page. We both worry about it quite a bit. And, you know, my book is designed to try to wake us up to some of that that's happening, right? I have a chapter on mental manipulation and about where do we draw the line between what's considered persuasive and what's considered manipulative. And so to your question of like, are we not going to have free will? I don't think we have free will anyway. What I think we have is freedom of action. And freedom of action is, you know, even though there's all kinds of preferences and biases and um, heuristics that are well outside of our control. And so kind of a very robust idea of free will would assume that you have control over all of those things. Freedom of action is when you have these different preferences and desires and between them, you commit yourself to something, right? Like I have migraines, I love chocolate. Um, these two things are in conflict with each other because chocolate triggers migraines. And so the thing that I commit myself to and I identify with is, yes, I am a person who loves chocolate and I am a person who has migraines, but I am not going to eat chocolate because it gives me migraines. And so this kind of second order uh, is what Harry Frankfurt, the philosopher, described it as a second order commitment between competing preferences that you don't have control over is how we sort of understand what human freedom looks like. 
And that freedom of action can also be interfered with. And it could be interfered with by making it almost impossible to act on your preferences and desires by hacking into the lower level systems in the brain and making it so that even if you want to not be on device, even if you want to not be drinking or smoking or whatever your vice is, you have a very difficult time being able to act on your preferences and desires. And I think we still have that. We still have freedom of action, but it's getting narrower and narrower the more systems are designed and targeted to overcome that. Yeah. And, you know, you know, I, you mentioned sort of the, the thinking slowly and, it, you know, just that's exactly what I worry about is this, whole, you know, Daniel Kahneman idea that we have these two systems and we are largely driven by, you know, the, the, the fast thinking system because the slow thinking system is inherently lazy, right? Like it, you know, we do tend to, to, you know, latch on to the first kind of right seeming answer and, you know, so now a lot of the strategies that we use at least, um, you know, are sort of screen time limits. You know, I've set a limit on social media on my phone where it's one, it's literally one minute a day. Yeah, <laughs> I break that. Okay. All, but I break it all the time. I mean, yeah. you know, here I am yeah. like, do you want more time? You know, that's well, just as easy to like click that button. And then it feels as if, oh, but I have this limit. So I am, I'm taking well, on, but, you but, know. But you, you are creating friction, right? <laughs> and so true. even if like, you're right that you may override it and you but every time you introduce that kind of friction you do enable yourself to stop and think and it gets harder like if you have to push the button 50 times that says like yes i want one more minute you do end up with some feedback to your brain too saying like okay this isn't going well right or like this strategy isn't going well but you know when when twitter you know back in the good old days had intentionally programmed into it the like, are you sure you want to share this without reading it? It does effectively slow down the spread of disinformation and it does ask you to engage more critical thinking. And, you know, the question is, how do we create incentives for developers to be doing more of that? Right. I mean, their their incentives and our incentives are not well aligned. Their incentives are to keep us on device and to not have us think slowly. And our incentives are to be able to think freely and to have actual like liberty and cognitive liberty, which I'm talking about in the book. And so how do we align their incentives to actually empower us so that instead of just trying to addict us and have us distracted all the time, there's somehow an alignment between technology that's being created and what it actually means to flourish as a human being. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of people have called for uh, a moratorium or a halt on the development of generative AI. You know, is that something that you feel we should be going at? Or like, what are some of these ways of implementing these, these, these stop gaps or these checks? Yeah, I mean, I don't even know what a pause means, to be perfectly honest. Like, I, I like, yeah. I, it's almost like a hail mary. It feels like, 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 wait, wait. I like, I want, I want, like, I want, you know, humanity 1.0. I don't, I don't want humanity 2.0. I don't like the, you know. First of all, AI systems do a lot of things that do help us and make our lives better. Um, and you know, how are you going to disaggregate which things you're putting a pause to and which things you're not putting a pause to? And what are we going to do in that pause that's so different? We already know what we need to be doing in a lot of these cases, at least for the threats that are present here today. You you hear people like Timnit, you know, saying, like, this is this is nonsense. We have 
long understood the basic problems of algorithmic discrimination and, you know, the um, intentionally trying to addict people to devices and, you know, the classes that people are teaching and the the workshops and books that they're writing about, you know, how to hack into the human brain. Like, we, we already know what the problems are. The problem isn't like pushing pause on it. It's that we aren't doing the things that we need to be doing to actually put the, you know, monitors in place to see what are the appropriate guardrails? What are like, how do we redirect this in ways that are actually beneficial to humanity? So I, I don't think pause makes sense. I do think, you know, we are sticking our heads in the sand if we think the developers are going to somehow, you know, align what they're doing with what's best for humanity, right? I mean, that that's not going to happen. That's not served us well in the past. <laughs> no, it hasn't. And it's, you know, and, and if you just think about what their even incentive structures in society are, like, why would they, right? They're just, they're just trying to sell their products and trying to drive an increase in the bottom line. They're not trying to advance the basic ideas of human liberty and human flourishing. That's up to us, right? That's up to all of us to say, like, this is the metric of success and how we're going to actually put into place limitations or redirection or what we're going to invest in or what we're going to use and how we're going to use it. I have the same anxieties you do about like, what am I going to teach my children and and how are they like, what is the future that we're creating for them? I'm a little bit more optimistic about the possibilities with something like generative AI than a lot of the current narrative is like, I did a deep dive with GPT-4 over the past month and I had access to write an essay to a different way of interacting with it than ordinary chat. And the parameters that you could control in that were really extraordinary. And, you know, I used it to do everything from writing an email, but to also do a deep dive in some philosophical theories that I was interested in exploring and to do almost like a personal tutor, uh, you know, and Socratic dialogue with it. I found it extraordinary, like the amount that I could learn in the month of playing with it was faster and better than I've ever experienced. And part of it was I could ask lots of dumb questions. I could say like, OK, but, you know, what do people say about this and how do people think about it in this way? And who are the leading theorists talking about this issue? And then give me a reading list that I can go and better understand this issue um, tell me the page numbers of the books that you're suggesting that like most support those different arguments. And so it ended up being like a very iterative process of online and offline trying to do this deep dive into the philosophical theories that I was interested in. And, you know, how do we how do we empower people to do that? How do we teach them to have, you know, ask the kinds of questions that would lead them there? How do we focus on the possibility of advancing learning and making sure that it doesn't replace teachers so that teachers are still actually enabling children to learn and have the building blocks that they would need to have that kind of personal tutor experience. So I have a lot of anxieties about it, but I also think like I see a hopeful future with it. And the question is, how do we go from the degenerative future that we seem to be stuck in with it to that hopeful future where it's used to really support human flourishing. I mean, I, I'm on the same page there. Like, yeah, there, there are days when I just think, oh, this is just going to make my kids' lives easier. They're not going to have to sort of deal with some of the annoying things that I have to deal with. And they're going to go be, be able to go straight to the creativity work, straight to like the kind of really interesting individual work 
And so, I, yeah, I agree with you. There's like that sense of hope, but there's also a sense of dread because I feel like there's just so many ways in which these technologies have made our lives worse. Yeah. The last dilemma that you pose in your introduction um, is embracing neurotechnology necessary for the very survival of our species to compete against the growing capabilities of AI. I feel like is exactly kind of where we're going with this conversation now. And this kind of brings me also to an, another layer that I wanted to ask you about, which is like, Look, I'm incredibly fortunate. I live in the Bay Area. My kids go, you know, we pay an, an exorbitant amount of money for them to go to a school where, you know, they have all of these technologies. So in some ways, you know, we're well poised, but I, I really worry about the inequality that this is creating. So, yeah. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about sort of how you you, you think about that last dilemma and in, you know, the short time we have left. Yeah. How do we well, I mean, so inequality? first, like, you know, you have people like Elon Musk saying, like, look, our only competitive advantage is if we all end up with like brain implants. Mm. Um, I don't think that's right. No, uh, I do think that there is a lot that is unique still about the way that the brain works and that we do have limitations on being able to use our brains as effectively as we might want to. And technology can both help us better understand some of those limitations, like even just things like neurodegenerative diseases and, you know, mental illnesses, which are skyrocketing. We know very little still about them. And having much more real world brain data could enable, for example, solving a lot of those problems and could give us capabilities of improving our brain health and wellness and make us competitive against AI. Um, it's also possible that we could learn things like brain-to-brain -brain communication or brain-to-text or brain-to-device that would uh, enable us to have much more seamless interactions with the rest of the world. And this is a lot of what the kind of transhumanist agenda is. And I'm not proposing it or advancing it in the book. What I'm doing is kind of laying out what the arguments are and inviting people to the dialogue to try to understand that this is part of what the ambition of a lot of people within the brain-computer interface kind of community is, is to figure out if you could unleash more the power of the human brain and if that would help us be competitive vis-a-vis -vis something like AI. Um, I think that's an important conversation for us to have, right? I mean, one of the things that I really try to do in the book is take a balanced approach to this, to advocate for a concept of cognitive liberty that's both a right to access the technologies, use the technologies, access information about our own brains, and a right from interference by others, um, a right from interference with our mental privacy and with our freedom of thought. And that right, too, gets at the heart of your question of inequality. You know, I don't know that the right answer for a place like Italy is to ban the use of ChatGPT, and if that doesn't just set back people from having access to the technology. But the question is, the more transformative the technology, the greater the widening of the gap can be if we have inequitable access and distribution. And I think what we're talking about now is that category of technology, right? From neural interface and brain sensors to generative AI, these are different in kind in their power and in the ways in which they can enable humanity. And, you know, the question really is going to be not only who has access to it, but who knows how to interact with it and use it and are able to use it in different contexts. And then who has the set of rights that protect them from the interference and manipulation that it causes as well, because it's just as likely that if we have widespread 
distribution of the technologies that some people will enjoy it in ways that are privacy enhancing and empowering, and some people will use it in ways that are oppressive and kind of strip them of rights. And so I think we have to think not just about the distribution of the technology, but the distribution of the rights that go with those technologies that protect people to enable them to use them in ways that kind of equally ensure flourishing across the spectrum of people who are engaging with them. Well, Nita Farhani, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. And I just want to let our listeners know that um, her book, The Battle for Your Brain, Defending the Right to Think Freely in the Age of Neurotechnology, is now available at booksellers everywhere. And I have to say, I think it's a must read. There's so much information in here. Uh, I was so skeptical at the beginning. <laughs> and uh, you had me on board, uh, especially, you know, watching all of this uh, generative AI improvement. And also, you know, I think I think you're exactly right that we need to think about these things, just like we needed to think about the ethics of, uh, you know, sequencing our genome and what the implications might be there and what checks and balances we need to put in place. We need to be thinking now about sort of the way in which neurotechnology is going to affect our lives. So thank you for sharing your thoughts with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's been a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. Yep, we're on the other side of 400, but we have so many cool things in the pipeline that I'm really excited to share with you. We've got great guests. We've got new formats. We've got new co-hosts. We are very excited at this next stage of Inquiring Minds. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of the show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank our long-term supporters, without whom 400 episodes would never have been possible, including David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Miller, Kyle Royhalla, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joelle, Stefan Meyer Awald, Dale LaMaster, and Charles Blyle. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. See you soon. Are you a software professional looking to make a lasting impact on people and the planet? At General Motors, our vision is a world with zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. And we need innovative people like you to join us on this journey and challenge the limits of what is possible. From autonomous cars to software-defined vehicles, you'll translate breakthrough technologies like AI into experiences that people love, all while pushing the world forward toward an all-electric future. See how you can shape the future of mobility at careers.gm.com.